0: Matthew chapter 20. The last several weeks we've been looking at the journey that has begun. Jesus is on His way to Jerusalem for His final Passover with His disciples and His death upon the cross that ultimately will take place there. He's been spending most of His time talking with His disciples, giving them some last-minute instructions, but also allowing the multitudes to come to Himself. And in that process, as we've looked in the past few weeks of that journey, we've seen Jesus receiving little children and saying, of such is the kingdom of God. His disciples didn't really understand that. They thought, like the man that comes to him in chapter 19 that they had to do good works in order to enter into the kingdom. They had to do things to please God. They had to work for their salvation. Jesus had said, no, no, that's not the case at all. Come as a little child. A little child comes humbly, doesn't have any pridefulness, doesn't have any preconceived ideas about what the kingdom of heaven is all about. They just receive by faith that which is told them. Child likeness is what Jesus is emphasizing, not childishness, but child likeness. And in chapter 19, the rich young ruler comes to him and wants to know what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life. And again, his assumption is that there's something lacking in his morality, and he himself thought himself to be quite good at obeying all of the commands of God, and he told Jesus as such, All these things he said to Jesus, I have done from my youth, when Jesus told him what commandments to keep. Of course, it was required of all the Jews to keep every one of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament Scriptures, but he had asked Jesus, which one should I keep? And Jesus answered him politely, you should do these things. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal. Shall not bear false witness, and love your neighbor as yourself. These things you must do. If you are to do anything, do those things, and in doing them, if you are able, then you might be good enough to enter in. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, but what you really need to do is sell everything that you own, and come and follow me. Now, that was a command to the rich young ruler, Particularly, particularly to him, not to everyone, but that was his God. In other words, the very first of the commandments, he had basically been breaking because of his status. He was a rich young ruler, and apparently he wasn't really willing to give up all of his possessions. They had become his God, and the Word of God tells us that the command of God in the Decalogue, the first Of the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt love the Lord your God and not have any false gods before you. That was his false god. And Jesus pointed that out to him. And so the man went away saddened. How unfortunate that the man could not at that time do what was the most important thing of all the things that he had been instructed throughout his entire life just simply to follow Jesus. Remember, Matthew is writing this, and we pointed that out last time, that he himself was a very rich man, a tax collector, and when Jesus had come to him as he was seated at the booth collecting taxes, Jesus simply said the same thing to Matthew that he said to that rich young ruler in chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel, come and follow me. And when Matthew heard those words, They penetrated his heart to the extent that he just simply got up and left everything and never went back. He couldn't have gone back. As a tax collector, he left his post. Somebody else quickly replaced him. He lost everything. He gave up everything to follow Jesus. And for the next over three years, Matthew was faithful in doing just that, following Jesus, learning from him, seeing all of the wonderful things that Jesus had done, hearing his voice proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. We don't know if the young man in chapter 19 did indeed ever come to Jesus. That's not the story that we have at all in any of the Gospels. All we know is that at that hour of his life, he was not prepared to give up those possessions and he walked away. And then after that experience, Peter asked a question. And I suppose you might think, well, Peter, you're not listening to what Jesus has been saying because what Peter asks is, what's in it for us? What will we have? We've left everything. What he focused on is the fact that the man would not give up all of his possessions and walked away and Peter realizes, hey, we gave up everything. What's in it for us? You see, Peter's thinking, like the rich young ruler, there must be some kind of reward for me, isn't there? Well, Jesus Did indeed tell him, yeah, all of you who have been following me, who have committed yourselves to me, the ones that I have chosen, of course with the one exception of Judas, he told them you will sit on thrones in Jerusalem, in the kingdom, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's a pretty good reward. You'd think that probably satisfied Peter and James and John and Andrew and all of the others. Well, yes, sort of. But Jesus ended chapter 19 with these words. Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Verse, nine, uh, verse 30 of chapter 19. It says that also again in chapter 20, which we will read momentarily. The first shall be last, the last first. Jesus has said there are rewards indeed, but that's not the most important thing. Remember, He had said you must come as a child, and then when you do so, you will enter into the kingdom. That is the criterion. That is only the one criterion. Come as a child. Also in chapter 13, Jesus again, or 19 rather, Jesus again invited the little children to come to him. He wanted to bless the little children. The disciples rebuked the parents for bringing their little children, and Jesus said, no, wait, stop. Don't you remember what I just said? And he repeats it again. Let the little children come to me, in verse 14 of chapter 19. Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And again, the emphasis is on simplicity of the gospel and the reception of that gospel by everyone. So in verse 1 of chapter 20, Jesus is actually going to continue talking about these very things. And verse 1 begins with the word for, which means that it's a continuation of what had been taking place after the fact that Jesus had just told his disciples, many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now it says in verse 1 of chapter 24, Jesus speaking, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. Now he's giving them a par- parabolic lesson. Remember what a parable is? A parable is a story using things that they are familiar with to show them something about the kingdom that they don't know, that they need to know. And so when he says the kingdom of heaven is like, the parable, which means, by the way, Greek word parable is combining, combining two words, para and ballo to throw alongside, literally. That's what a parable does. It gives you something of a context which you can understand in order to understand something that's far deeper and in meaning that wants to be conveyed by the teacher. And this is the teacher of teachers speaking these words. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. Now, we remember from previous parables, whenever we see a householder or landowner, we're talking about God himself. It's a type of, a picture of the Lord God Almighty taking the role of an owner of property in this parable. A landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So he's looking for people to do some work in his vineyard. Early in the morning, probably was around the break of dawn, the Jews considered their day to begin in the evening, at six o'clock in the evening, and When the sun sets the next day, that's the end of the day. But here, the very first sign of light in the morning, around six o'clock in the morning, would be when laborers would be gathering in the marketplace because they didn't really have what we have in our work system that we are comfortable with and familiar with. They had to rely on wealthy people to select individuals from among those who gather in in the marketplace for the purpose of giving them their hire for a day. And they would work a full 12-hour day, typically, in the fields, especially during harvest time. That was what they were to expect, and it was for that purpose that these men and women were all gathered together in that marketplace and waiting for somebody to come along to hire them. Now, in the Old Testament, and it was true in Jesus' day as well, Moses had told the people of Israel, that when you hire somebody, you don't keep his coat when the work is done. You give it back to him because that's his blanket. You also need to pay for that person's work at the end of the day. That was what was expected, and it was still so in Jesus' day. So these people who were gathered together in the marketplace are greeted by this landowner. He has a vineyard he needs the harvest to be taken care of, and he wants laborers to come into the vineyard to do the work, and he tells them this. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. That's good. A denarius was considered in that day a day's wage, probably around 35, 40 cents in our economy, but that was a very, very good pay for a day's work in that day. It was enough for them to be able to provide for their family to buy food, and to be able to afford to live off of that and and sustain themselves and their families. A denarius was agreed to. The landowner offered it, and the people who were willing said, yeah, that's a good deal, that's what we would expect, we'll do that. So they did, and he sent them into his vineyard. Then he went out about the third hour, which would be 9 o'clock, in the morning, and saw others milling about, standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Now, he doesn't specify, I'll give you a denarius. He says, whatever is right. That's important because he's not declaring that he's going to treat them with the same kind of offer that he gave those who came at the early part of the day. In other words, they were probably thinking, all right, he's going to give us what's right, so we're here at 9 o'clock, we've missed three hours of work, he's probably going to pay us around three-quarters of a denarius or so, and that's good enough for us. We're gladly going into work for him because nobody else has offered us a job, and they needed the money to help to pay for their livelihood. So whatever is right, I will give you, and they went. Again, verse 5 says, He went out about the 6th in the ninth hour and did likewise. So there were still at 12 o'clock and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, still people milling about, not having been hired by anybody, and he offers to hire them, and he tells them the same thing apparently that he told the people at 9 o'clock. I'll give you what is right. And they went in. Now these people weren't just idle bums, they were waiting for, they were hoping for some employment, but they hadn't been hired by anybody. It's by grace that this man goes out in the third hour, in the sixth hour, in the ninth hour to hire all of those people. He didn't have to do that, but it was grace that drew him back to the marketplace. And he's seeing those people still wandering about, not able to find any employment, His mercy, His grace is extended to them. I can use you. Go ahead out into my vineyard, and I'll pay you what is right. Now, by this time, His disciples must be scratching their heads. Nobody does that. But in this story, in this parable, He's setting up a particular thing that they need to hear. And the last of what He says is even more far-fetched of all the others so far. It says in verse 6, in about the 11th hour, 5 o'clock in the evening, there's only one more hour of sunlight. Most of those who were hired are expecting at this hour to get home to their families in about an hour's time because the work they will be complete. These people are still waiting to find some help by some rich person that perhaps might Hire them for even one hour. It won't be much, but at least it'll be something. About the eleventh hour again, he says in verse 6, He went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to them, Well, no, we didn't really want to work today. That's not what they said. They said, I have nobody to hire me. No one had hired us, he said to them then. Go also into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. Just like he said to those who came at the third and the ninth and the sixth hours, and all of the others, I will give you what is right. Now they're looking at that and thinking, well, at least I'll get an hour's worth of wages in. Maybe I can buy something for my children and we'll have to fast tonight, my wife and I. But that's okay. We'll make it better next day. Next day. But today we have something that we can go home with. Some small thing that we can depend upon. I'll give you what is right. Remember, this is a picture of God. And remember also, God always gives what is right. Always Verse 8 says, So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. Not a twelfth of a denarius, not a tenth, not a fifth, not a quarter. Not a third, not a half, but a whole day's worth for one hour of labor. Everybody was watching. Those who were first were paid late. Those who were last were paid first. And when they were paid first, the ones who had come first saw what was going on, and they said, whoa, this is a good thing for us. Listen to what Jesus is telling you here. He says in verse 10, When the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. Well, of course, that's logical. That's human nature. If the people who were there for only an hour got a whole day's wage and they were there for 12 hours, they're going to get much more than they were promised, don't you think? Well, that's not exactly why Jesus is telling this particular parable. They likewise... Received each of them a denarius. Holding a denarius in your hand after seeing the first group get the same, looking down at that denarius, wondering what is going on here. This is terrible. That's their attitude. Read it. Verse 11. When they had received it, they complained against the landowner. This isn't fair. You've done us a great injustice. This is absolutely wrong. Why have you done this to us? Verse 12, that's what they're saying. These last men have worked only one hour And you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. We worked harder than they did. We were there all through the heat of the day. We suffered greatly. And you're giving us the same amount as them who did nothing for the whole day except for one hour? What's wrong with you? I don't think any of us would be talking to God that way, do you? But that's the point. That's the point that Jesus is making here. If the landowner is a picture of God, then there's absolutely no reason why any one of us, no matter what might have taken place in that labor for him that we may or may not have committed ourselves to, he always does what is right. In verse 13, the landowner answers their complaint. He said to them, Answering to one of them, he said, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius? Wasn't that what you had already at the beginning of the day said you'd be perfectly willing to work for one denarius? Isn't that what we agreed to? There's absolutely no question that the man had to say, Yep, that's what I agreed to. So in verse 14, he tells this man, and those others who were with him at the beginning of the day, who all of them received just a one denarius. Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? And then again in verse 16, Jesus drives home that point that he's been making all along in this parable, So the last will be first, and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. That's an addition to what he had said in chapter 19, verse 30. He repeats verse 30, but he adds to that, again, the last portion of that verse. Don't misread, don't misunderstand, don't misapply. He says, many are called, but few are chosen. We can park there for a while, but what I want to do before we do that is to kind of review with you what is then the purpose of this parable. Remember, Jesus again had said to His disciples, you must come as a little child. Enter into the kingdom. That's the only way to come. But what must I do to be saved? (laughs) Just come as a child. But there must be something I have to earn. No, just... Come as a child. His disciples were asking the same thing. Okay, we've left everything. What's in it for me? What reward do I get for having done that? Jesus said, oh yeah, you'll get reward. But that's not what is important. It's not the reward that is important, it is eternal life that is the focus. And it needs to remain so in all of our hearts. Jesus did tell another parable similar to this one, and it was something to do with rewards. You may remember that parable. There were servants who were told by their master to go out and do their work, and he gave them the resources to do that work. To one, he gave five talents, which is a measure of weight. And that one went out and did the work that God had assigned assigned for him to do. To another, he gave four talents, and that one went out also. And to a third, Jesus tells in that parable, he gave one talent. But instead of doing what he was supposed to do with that talent, he basically hid it, buried it, and waited for his master to return. When the master returned, the one who was given five talents comes to the master and said, Here are your five talents, and behold, here are five more talents that were earned as I did the work that you called me to do. And Jesus' response in the parable was simply to say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've done well. Your reward is, you will be master over ten cities. To the one he gave four talents, he came back and, Here's your four talents, plus I've earned you four more. Doing the work that you called me to do. Good job, faithful servant. You've been faithful in this, I'm going to put you over eight cities to the one that hid the talent. He comes back and he says, here is your talent, Master, for I know you to be an austere man. And so I buried the talent. And here it is back so that you won't have lost anything. He didn't do any of the work that he was supposed to do. And the owner did not commend that man. In fact, He condemned that man. You should have done something with that talent. It wasn't that much that I was requiring of you, but to hide it was to be disrespectful to me as your owner. Yes, you thought me to be austere, and I am. But you should have at least put that money in the bank so it would earn interest. If nothing else, you should have at least done something, but you did not. Take from that one and give to the other who has ten. And he cast it, that person, into prison. The picture that he is making is there are rewards. To the one who does good things on behalf of the Lord in our lifetimes as believers in Christ, we can expect rewards. And that's a good thing. If you read chapter five of Second Corinthians, you'll find that there is a seat of judgment that Christ is going to sit on, and it is for the purpose of issuing rewards for those who have served Him all their days, or as many days as they have known Him to be their Lord and Savior. For some, the things that they did were like wood, hay, and stubble. Those things will get burned up. They're useless. They did not really have any purpose They just did them, thinking perhaps that they were doing some great thing for the Lord, but they were not in the Lord's eyes. But there are other things that we might have done, that hopefully we will have done, that will, as it goes through that same fire, will come out as gems, precious jewels, things that would be recognized by our king as having value. That's our rewards. It's not for salvation. It's for the benefit of receiving rewards for the things that we've done in our bodies. But here in this parable, he's not talking about that. He's talking instead about the fact that the grace of our God far supersedes anything that we can do to the extent that if we think that we can do anything to enter into the kingdom of God, we're missing the mark. We're un- able to grasp the grace and mercy of our God who says, all you have to do is believe in Jesus Christ. All you have to do is receive forgiveness from your sins through faith in Him. And you enter in. You might come in at the very beginning of your life. And this is a good picture, I believe, of the life of anyone upon the face of the earth. This parable. You might have come to the Lord at a very young age and you might have served the Lord all the days of your life, working for the kingdom's sake, doing great things for God and benefiting from the rewards both here in this life and the rewards that will be meted out in that day of judgment. But you're no better off the one who comes in at the very last moment of his life or her life. Think of the man on the cross on one side of Christ, the other on the other side. They both were following along with the crowd, throwing blasphemous statements at Jesus. But one of those two thieves on the cross heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. One of those actually heard the things that Jesus was saying, and he came to the realization that this is not just any man, but that this must be the Messiah who is suffering from my sins. And he turned to Jesus and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response was, Sorry, pal, you're out. No. He said, Today you will be with me in paradise. That thief on the cross had a deathbed experience. He came to the Lord just at the last moment of his life. There are many, many instances of that kind of story that you may have heard all over the world. People have died on their deathbed crying out to Jesus and being saved as a result of their calling out to save them. They... Are last but as far as Jesus is concerned it's like they were first and the ones who lived for Jesus all their days and did all the wonderful things that they did they're not getting any different reward for eternity sake they're, they're getting reward but they're not they're not getting any extra eternal life out of it it's all Everyone the same one denarius, whether you came in at the beginning or whether you came in at the end of your life. One denarius, one eternal life per person. It's simple. So this parable speaks to me, I hope it does to you, that anyone, no matter how old you might be or how many years you have Live for yourself and not for God. There is, just like it was for that rich young ruler, just like it was for all of his disciples, just like it was for me and for all of those who have accepted Christ already, there is one day in our lives where we make a decision. And that one day in our lives, when we make that decision for Christ, we're born again and we have eternal life. You could have done it ten years ago. But you didn't. Perhaps you could have done it 20 years ago or 30, and you didn't. But you do it now, and it's just as though you did then. The same result eternal life. That's grace. That's God's mercy. That's what Jesus is talking about in this parable. First shall be last, the last shall be first but what does he mean in the latter part of verse 16 when he says, For many are called, but few are chosen. Again, that's not something he's spoken of yet. He's just introduced that now. And don't you wonder, why did he say that? Many are called. Few are chosen. Well, his disciples had followed him. Remember, they decided to follow him because of one thing and one thing alone. Jesus approached them sometime in the past many years, or at least a few years before that statement, and He said to them, Come, follow Me. And they did. He called them, and they responded. They said, Yes, I will follow you. Did they choose Him? Mm, Yeah. Did He choose them? Oh, yeah. You see, what Jesus is saying is, there are many who are called... The whole world can come to Christ. It's not the Father's will that any should perish, but that everyone should come to Christ and be saved. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should have life, eternal life, a gift of God. It comes by faith through grace, by faith. He loves all, but not all will come. Many are called, but few are chosen. Another parable that Jesus had talked to his disciples about before this event might possibly have come to the mind of the disciples when he said these words. In that particular parable, Jesus was talking about a marriage feast. A rich man... Son was getting married. He sends out invitations. Not everybody chooses to come. He sends out more invitations. And still, the house isn't full. He wants the house to be full for this great feast. So he sends his servants out to the highways and byways. and said, compel them to come in until the place is filled. And now they can have their wedding feast. Now, one thing that's very, very important for you to understand is that it was commonplace for a wealthy person to provide a wedding garment for everyone who comes into the wedding chamber for the celebration of that feast. So everybody is seated. Everybody comes. The house is full. But the man of the house looks out and sees somebody dressed in different garments. He's not dressed in the wedding garment that was given to him. Why aren't you dressed for the wedding feast? He's kicked out. He was called. He came, but He wasn't chosen. Keep that in mind. When Jesus is saying here, many are called, but few are chosen, He's just saying what He had said earlier. The way is narrow, and few there be that find it. Yes, He chooses, but it's based on response. If our response isn't what it should be to His call, then we are not chosen. But His grace is extended to anyone who would respond to that call in a proper way with thanksgiving in their heart for the mercy that He has extended to us. And as we do so, He chooses to accept you. That's good news. Now, now, after the parable has been spoken, talking about the fact that it's all about the gift that God wants to give everyone. In the same portion, Jesus now, as they are approaching Jerusalem, verse 17, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, this is now the fourth time that He is going to either directly say or imply this news about his death, burial, and resurrection. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, in verse 18, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. He's added more and more information in this statement that he's making here, more than he had made in the previous statements with regard to the events that are about to unfold. It's not that they should be totally taken by surprise. They should be getting this. They should be understanding what he's saying. But he's been speaking in parables. And as far as the disciples are concerned, their expectation is that they are going to sit on one of the twelve thrones in his kingdom. They're looking forward to that kingdom age. They think it's immediate when they're heading to Jerusalem for that purpose. They believe it to be absolutely certain that they are about to enter into great and mighty things that they will be a part of. That Jesus will indeed sit upon the throne of David. The psalm we read this morning, Psalm 89, speaks of the promise by God to David that one who descends from his loins would sit on his throne. And take note of the fact that He made exception to the sons of David. Those who do not believe, those who do not obey, they will be punished. But there's still the promise that God made to David, and He said, I will not relent. I will not change my mind. This promise I have made to David, and I will keep it. There will be indeed one who is a descendant of David who will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. That's a given. That won't change. It hasn't happened yet. But it will. They thought it was about to happen. We're now 2,000 years or so later, and it still hasn't yet happened. Does that mean it won't? Absolutely not. It's coming, people. We're entering into a time, if you look around, you see things happening in the world around you. You know what's going on. Read the newspapers or get your information from a good source on the Internet, if you must. But know what is happening in the world. And know that these things have been prophesied. And know that these things must take place in order for the fulfillment of all things. The Lord willing, we'll be talking about some of that next week. But here, let's finish our study this morning in this great chapter of, of chapter 20. Let's look together at what takes place after Jesus says these things about Himself. The resurrection, the death on the cross, the mocking, the scourging. Verse 20 says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? So she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one in your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. Where's where's their thinking process here? What were they hearing when Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die? He never said anything about setting up his kingdom. Oh, yes, before He told His disciples, oh, you're all going to be sitting on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. They took that and they ran with it. They didn't hear a thing after that. And even John and James, his brother, colluded with their mother and convinced her, probably, I don't think she did it on her own volition, But I think they had something very much to do with this question that she asked Jesus. Will you let my two sons sit on your right hand and your left in your kingdom? Who is this mother? James and John are the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee was a very wealthy fisherman in the Galilee region. He was well known in Jerusalem and other places as well and so was John and James his brother they were very very well received by even Caiaphas and Annas we find that in John's gospel but also we find in the gospel records that this woman is most likely Mary's cousin but which Mary well that's something that isn't completely what we can be certain of but if you take Matthew chapter 22 and Mark chapter 14 and Luke chapter 19 you put their statements together with regard to the names of individuals who were involved in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ Luke tells us that that woman's name is Salome Salome and that she is apparently the cousin of Mary, the mother of Jesus, which then makes John and James his cousins. So this Aunt Salome comes to Jesus and said, Hey, my boys are worthy of this. Would you let them sit on your right hand and your left? It may not necessarily be completely accurate, but it's a good assumption that that is indeed the arrangement that's trying to be made by this woman and her two boys. They're involved, as we see later in verse 22, it says, But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. And I think now turning to James and John, he says this, Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said, We are able. They didn't know what they were saying. As it turned out, James was the first of the twelve apostles to be martyred. Not the first martyr of the church, but the first of the twelve apostles. John, on the other hand, lived a very long life, but suffered greatly at the hands of Rome. Spent a good deal of time in prison, at Patmos in isolation. Of course, that's where he was receiving the revelation that we have before us in this book. So there are good things that resulted from his life, Some good things that resulted from the martyrship of all of the saints. But again, James did indeed drink of the cup. And John, I believe, also, in a different sort of way. Jesus drank that cup, and we're told about that in the story about the Gethsemane record, where he drank the cup that was placed before him. Not my will, he said, but yours be done. The baptism: identification. Will you be identified with me in my suffering? In innocent saying, yes, yes, we're ready for that." Verse 23 says, "You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. So when we get to heaven, we'll see thrones. We'll see Jesus seated on on His throne. The question is, who will be on His right? Who will be on His left? Will it be one of the twelve? Maybe. Will it be the grandmother in Kentucky who raised four grandchildren on her own and taught them about the things of God? Will it be the widow who lived all by herself for so many years, praying daily for her neighbors? Will it be Billy Graham? Chuck Smith? You? Somebody will see be seated at his right hand. Somebody will be seated at his left hand. But it's not his to give, it's his father's. That's another indication, by the way, that Jesus had left everything, emptied himself, according to Philippians chapter 2, of all his glory, and in his humanity, he could only do what the Father had told him. He only knew what the Father had revealed to him. And all that was responsible, that God was responsible for, God would choose to do, and Jesus wouldn't necessarily know until it happens. Now Jesus has returned to that glory. He was raised from that grave, resurrected, the first fruit of the resurrection. And He's seated now at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for you and for me against the accuser who comes and tries to put you in a bad place and me. But Jesus says... I gave them their wage. They came. And they have that denarius already. It's theirs. Verse 24 says, And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. John, James, what's wrong with you? Remember, they had argued who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. That argument continues to go on with them. And they're infuriated that James and John would have the guts to come to Jesus and ask through their mother this very, very thing that they themselves wanted. They didn't get it. Who's greatest in the kingdom? The one who sits at his right hand? The one who sits at his left? The children. Jesus called them to Himself in verse 25 and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Don't think yourself to be greater than another." That's what He's saying here. It applied then, it applies now. It shall not be so among you, he said in verse 26, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. The Greek word is diakonos. It means minister. We refer to ministers in a much different way. I hope that you don't think of me as a minister who is anything like what some believe a minister should be. We're not over anyone We're your servant. And that's what minister means. A servant. Then he says, whoever desires to be first among you, remember the first shall be last, the last first. If you want to be first, great. Whoever wants to be first, let him be your slave. That one who wants to be at the top doesn't get to the top by greatness. He gets to the top by being In the Greek, a doulos, a servant. Yes, a bond slave, lowest of the low. You want to be great? Be a servant. Lastly, he says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Many will come. Few are chosen. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. Come as a child. But come. Receive that denarius. and enter in.